0: but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the living God. George Whitfield, uh, many years ago, preached a sermon entitled The Almost Christian, The Almost Christian. First he set about defining what an almost Christian is, then he showed some of the characteristics of an almost Christian, and then he showed uh, some of the dangers of that and the benefits of not being an almost Christian, but being an altogether Christian. And It leads us to ask the question, it's a profound and provocative uh, category to think in, of the question we need to consider, why is it that some people remain an almost Christian and not an altogether Christian? Jesus is addressing those who are considering following him. That is the issue here. As Luke chapter 9 concludes, the question of will you follow Jesus? And we could call it the demands of discipleship. We notice that the first Uh, that three times this word follow comes up in the text, verse 57, verse 59, verse 61. Each of these three individuals who come to Jesus or summoned by Jesus all have this issue of following Jesus. And to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. It is the same as being a Christian. There is no sense in Scripture that there's some kind of two-tiered, stages of Christianity where you become a Christian and then later you become a disciple or a follower. No, to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Christ. Of course, we are all in different stages of growth and maturity, to be sure. And yet, there is no dichotomy between these two. Actually, I remember years ago that my wife was talking to someone and they were talking about the gospel and just some of the demands of the gospel. And this person said to my wife, yeah, I'm just not that kind of Christian. Um, And that was an interesting statement to say. And I think the right biblical way to interpret it is that you are not a Christian if you are not that kind of Christian because this is what a Christian is. And so sadly, many people have a kind of view of this two-tiered idea but to be a disciple is to be a follower of Christ and this doesn't mean by any stretch that we work to become uh, acceptable in God's sight no our acceptance is in Christ because of his work alone but having trusted in Christ true follow true christians follow Christ that is just so evident so obvious through scripture they are disciples they are learners and livers Uh, of what they learn about Christ. This passage presents to us then three different people who are challenged with the demands of following Christ. And these three then provide for us three timeless challenges to coming to Christ. These challenges were true in Jesus' day and they remain true in our day. They are helpful for us to examine ourselves to see if these are excuses found in your heart and mouth. But if you are a follower of Christ, which many of you are, then it is very helpful as well uh, to do two things for us. Number one, it reminds us what it is God called us unto, right? This is what he called us to, to follow him. And these demands still remain the demands of discipleship for us. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of that. It's also very helpful um, to realize the context that Jesus gives this in he has just said that he's going to Jerusalem. He set his face to go there to die. And so some of this is also explaining what discipleship looks like, but also in the next chapter, chapter 10, he's going to send out a large group of his disciples to go out and preach and proclaim. And they're gonna face some opposition along the way. And so I think this is very strategic of Luke to place this here because it shows three people who are wannabe disciples or, or um they, they, they get close, they are fickle followers, we could call them, and Jesus has something to say for each of them, and it shows that the demands of discipleship are high, and, and, and it also prepares the disciples as they go out to realize that not everyone will become a follower of Christ, despite their efforts, despite their preaching, and I think it, it helps for us as well to not become discouraged when we see people who hear the gospel and they don't respond to it or they seem to have a response to the gospel, but it proves not to be genuine. And so the context is really helpful because he shows these three right before he sends them all out to go do the work of proclaiming the gospel and no doubt they will face some of these three same responses to the call to follow Christ. And so it is true for us that we will see that as well as we seek to be faithful to proclaim the message. But this also becomes a powerful message for what the category of people we might call almost Christians. I think all three of these people are in that category. They are all almost Christians. And it's a warning that they might see the dangers that keep people from following Christ so that they might become altogether Christians. So we want to look at this passage and it's so easy to break down because there's three people that come to Jesus and it all starts with something about following Jesus. So you have three points to follow and three uh, somewhat different um, issues regarding the dangers of uh, following, what, what keeps people from following Christ. So we want to see three dangers that keep people from following Christ so that you might know the demands of discipleship. First, we want to consider the danger of deceived discipleship. The danger of deceived discipleship in verses 57 and 58. Look there again at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So we meet our first man here. He he comes to Jesus. He is uh, approaching him. He's eager and he's willing to follow Christ. He actually approaches him. He says what sounds like a believer. In fact, if you went to Revelation chapter 14, there's a very similar construction. And it says in chapter 14 verse 4, it is the speaking of the 144,000, it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Notice that phrase it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That is a description of Christians, of genuine believers. And so here's this man who eagerly comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Hey, this is a great start. Yet, he is very self-confident in himself. I will follow you wherever you go. He's confident of himself. This man, according to Matthew, now Matthew includes the first two two people. He leaves out the third one. But also, um, Matthew it gets a little more specific about, uh, like, for instance, he tells us this man was a scribe. Luke doesn't. I think Luke's being more general for, to making this more timeless for us. Three categories. But Luke focuses more on a Jewish audience, and so he highlights for them that this man was a scribe. So he's an expert in the law of God. But he's nevertheless deceived as to what it truly meant to follow Christ. He was confident in his own resolve to follow, no matter what, but he was deceived as to what it really meant. He is like one who makes a bold New Year's resolution, but by the end of January, it is on the wayside. (laughs) He has given it up. Back to his old ways. He has resolve, but not repentance. He had much confidence in himself, but not in Christ. Now, just imagine someone comes up to you let's just say you're, you're on a plane and someone sits down next to you and you've got an opportunity to start talking to them and they, you know, you're reading your Bible uh, and they notice your Bible and so they start asking you questions and they, they say something like this, I want to follow Christ wherever he goes. You know, I'll, tell me, tell me more about this, right? I mean, what would you do with that? You're like, what in the world? Like looking around and this is, what an opportunity, what would you do? Well, that kind of thought experiment helps us to look at Jesus and see how he responded to people, and it wasn't always what we would expect. You know, you think some evangelism programs, Jesus might fail out of them because of how he treats people who seem so eager, and yet he knows the heart, and he takes a little bit more time. Notice the somewhat startling response of Jesus to this man, who was quick to declare his allegiance to Christ. Spurgeon says, quote, Christ undeceived this man in a very wonderful way. (laughs) He undeceived him. So this man was deceived to some degree and he needed to have clarity. Jesus wants him to have a fuller picture of what following him will involve. And Jesus' point is simply that the way he is treated is what his followers should expect as well. The way he is treated is what his followers should expect as well. And we're gonna see that increasingly, that his discipleship is shaded and defined by the path that Jesus walks. First the cross, then glory. And so Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Or son of man is a favorite title of Jesus used for himself, Uh, Some some want to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, and that's rightly so. Uh, He's like a son of man, but it actually is a very powerful uh, phrase, uh, title for his divinity because it comes from Daniel chapter 7, and the Daniel 7 figure, son of man, is uh, one like Adam, but he's also one who's supernatural and divine, and so it is a very powerful uh, statement of Jesus' divinity. Um, In addition to that, it's Jesus' favorite title for himself, and he's the only one who uses it for himself. Uh, except for demons who recognize him as such. And so he uses it so frequently. And really what you notice in Daniel 7 is that in the beginning of Daniel 7, you'll find that the Son of Man is uh, described in his work. And then in the latter part of chapter 7, you have the saints described who are related to the Son of Man. So you have the Son of Man represents his people and his people are connected and tied to uh, the Son of Man. And so that makes sense actually in our context as well, uh, that he's saying that what I've experienced as the son of man is what you can expect as the saints. That is actually in harmony with Daniel's intent. So his point is that while these creatures, think about the creatures he points out, foxes and birds. These are creatures that no one really provides for. Um, They just are out there. These are just animals that no one really takes time to care for, but yet nevertheless, they have places to live. They have places to, to go at night even though no one's taking an active role in caring for them, save God alone, of course. But here he's saying, despite no one caring for those, they have a place to live and lay their head down. The son of man does not. There's a great quote I found. MacArthur, he says this, quote, the creator had fewer creature comforts than the animals he had created, end quote. Nowhere to lay his head. This is actually true in context. Where did Jesus just come from? Samaria. And what was the problem there? They wouldn't allow him a place to stay. He sent his disciples ahead to prepare a place for them, and they would not receive him. And then James and John are like, let's call fire down, napalm, you know. And he's like, no, that's a different story. But they, this just happened. Now, of course, was this always the case for Jesus? No. People welcomed him into his home, into their homes. They provided for him. So this wasn't like He never had a place, but this was a pattern. There was no guarantee for this. And it speaks of two things, really. It speaks of Jesus' rejection by many, as well as his discomfort. And so this this was his life. And these are two things that followers of Christ should expect. It may not be the case that this is what happens all the time for you, especially the time in which we live. Um, We often have many more creature comforts, and those aren't bad. Those are gifts from God for us to enjoy, right? So whatever gifts God has deemed to give you in his providence, uh, you better enjoy those, right? Uh, God wants you to enjoy those as a gift from his hand. Um, But we should not be surprised when discomfort may come and when rejection may come. Um, We should not be surprised, And so Jesus is telling this man that he must be willing to forgo personal comfort and welcome rejection by others if he will be Jesus' disciple. It will not always be easy to follow Jesus. It will not always be comfortable to follow Jesus. It will not always bring you social status to follow Jesus. In fact, in Jesus' time, it it says that for fear of the Jews, they were not confessing him. Remember, Remember the blind man and his parents He, you know, the the he's healed by Jesus in John nine, and they bring him in. They're interviewing him. Who did this? And and he's like, "Oh, you sound like you guys want to be his disciples." You know, he's a little sarcastic. But it, but his parents are nervous because they know that the leaders of the synagogue have the power to kick them out of the synagogue. And that will have so many social implications and they don't want that. And so because they fear man and not God, they fear the Jews so they don't confess him openly. Hey, you, you just talk to our son. He'll, he'll answer. We don't want to say anything. They don't want to be, face that. And that's the danger of loving the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The, the antidote to fear and fear of man is a fear of God that outweighs that. It's concerned more about him. Followers of Jesus do not choose the path that always feels good. They choose the path that is most faithful. Spurgeon says this in his sermon on this text called Fickle Followers. He says, oh, may none of you ever profess Christianity for the sake of what you can get. Just pause there for a second (laughs) and think about that statement and how many people? That's their perspective. Oh, may none of you ever profess Christianity for the sake of what you can get. I can assure you that in these days, those who follow Christ for loaves and fishes will find the loaves very small and the fishes very full of bone. Wow. And he's talking about his day. I mean, we're in our day. And we think, man, I want to live in Spurgeon's day. Well, maybe you don't because, you know, some other things. But, uh, but you get the point. Here we are pilgrims and sojourners and strangers. Here we have no lasting city. This is what those in Hebrews 11 are commended for. Hebrews 11:13 says, They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would be, have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. To not, have, to not be ashamed to go, call God your God, to call Christ your Lord in this culture, means you have to have this heavenly perspective. You have to think, this life is not it. I'm a pilgrim here. It, it doesn't matter uh, so much Right now, uh, you know, getting the accolades of men, it matters pleasing God, faithfulness. We all desire settledness. That's very normal. But the follower of Christ knows that ultimate settledness does not come until the new earth. We, we, we experience quite a bit of settledness uh, in our day compared to the apostles. But nevertheless, we still don't put our hope in that. We look to this lasting city that is a real city. And so that Jesus challenges this man with the demands of discipleship. And I was listening to a podcast some time ago uh, where some Navy SEALs were talking, uh, and they were talking about a fellow SEAL who had gone through the incredible training of BUDS training, basic underwater demolitions, and it's just, it's like such a hard school and, to get through. And they, this guy got through it, and the, the team is all there, they're ready to go, they're ready for their first assignment, and this was just before September 11th and September 11th happened. They just graduated. They're ready to go. Don't know what's going to happen. September 11th, September 12th. He says I quit. I quit. He had made it through the, one of the hardest schools and they were like, "Yeah, he just he he thought it would, you know, they were trying to think about w- what is going on in this guy's mind, but they said, "Well, when wartime comes, you realize you didn't just sign up for this to be cool or to, um, you know, be the best of best, but to actually do what you were called to do. He loved the idea, I think, of being a seal, but had not had great resolve. But when the prospect of wartime came, he knew he was not ready for that. And so he, he backed out. And Jesus is trying to challenge this man as well. Think of pliable in Pilgrim's Progress, more, or more <laughs> closer to scripture example. He follows along with Christian to the celestial city. And he's eager at first to go along with them until they get caught in their first trial, the slough of despond. You know, there's an old English way of putting it. It's this bog that they get stuck in. It's like a miry bog. It's like quicksand. And they can't get out and they're struggling. And here's what Pliable says to Christian. It says, At that, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect twixt this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. So away he went and Christian saw him no more. There it is. This is this guy. He comes and he said, oh yeah, I want to follow you wherever you go. Slew of the spot, I'm out. <laughs> he turns back at the first sign of trouble for the Christian pilgrim. Now let's contrast this with the Scottish missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebrides, John Patton, or Peyton, however you say his name. He recounts one night he had to spend a night in a tree because the cannibals wanted to eat him. He says this, quote, being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul. Then when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow, as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship if thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? John Patton, up in a tree all night, not knowing whether they will find him, kill him, and eat him. Patton knew that he was, it was totally worth it to suffer in this way for the name of Christ. And he found some of the sweetest communion in that moment, in that time. The Lord draw, drew near to him in the midst of that. Jesus is warning of the danger of being a fair-weather fan of Christ. And so we ask the question, are you willing to suffer rejection and loss of comfort in following Christ? This man was likely a part of the rocky soil, eager to follow at the first, but fizzles out when conditions get difficult. Spurgeon warned of, of this as well. He said, quote, now as the church hastily counts up her numbers and says, so many were converted. The world has another register and counts up the apostates, the backsliders, the wanderers. And it is a serious blow struck at the crown and the glory of Christ when the world can say, Such and such a man bore Christ's name and he acted like a servant of the devil. Hence our Lord was wise as the great heart-searching savior to let this man know the worst side of religion that if he did take up with it, he might know what the cost of it would be. Spurgeon's saying, hey, don't too quickly count converts just so you can boost your numbers because the world is another register and they're keeping count of all those false converts who claim the name of Christ. And so it, it is sad because if... Jesus doesn't do this and doesn't uh, try to challenge this man. He's liable to welcome those in who will actually not only give a bad name to the world, to, of Christ to the world, but also will make it harder for other people to come to Christ. Because if people claim the name of Christ, but they don't actually live for him, then other people, it, it, it does this, it broadens the already wide road to destruction. Because people go, oh yeah, that guy's a Christian and he doesn't care about that. And it just kind of greases The skid, so to speak, of lazy Christianity. So this is the danger of deceived discipleship. It is the worst kind of deception because often it is self-deception. And so this is the danger of deceived discipleship. Secondly, let's notice the danger of delayed discipleship. The danger of delayed discipleship. Verses 59 to 60. We read there. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, notice there's a contrast here. What do you notice that's different between the first and the second? Well, in contrast to the first man who came to Jesus, this man is called by Jesus. Jesus calls him to follow him. Maybe he's walking along interested and Jesus calls him out follow me. What a privilege to have Jesus say to you audibly, follow me, follow me. If Jesus were here today and he said to you, your name here, follow me, what would you do? Would you lie to him and say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you when you know you won't? Would you tell him just no? Would you say, yes, Lord, by your grace alone, I want to follow you? Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is here today and he is calling you through his word, follow me. This is a very individual command. So what will your answer be to him? Here the man has a request. Notice the word first. First. Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first. This gives us a hint at the issue here. It's the issue of priority. The issue of priority. I'll follow you, Lord, but first I have something more pressing to attend to. Now, on the surface, this request seems quite reasonable. You could, we could pull many examples of people burying their fathers, caring for them in the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with that. we, We want to kind of yell out, and we just scratch our head, you know, as well, and go, like, Jesus, let the guy go to his dad's funeral. What's the big deal? Why would Jesus not allow him to do this? It seems heartless. So what's going on here? What's likely the case is that the man's father has not yet died. Why would we say that? Well, if the man is with Jesus, it seems unlikely his father's already died. If he was just right at the point of death, he would be with his father. Uh, also, um, they usually buried people within 24 hours. We've already seen that as the the widow in Nain is uh, the day of burying her, her son. in Lazarus, he's buried and they come four days later, he's already in the tomb. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, that's another example. So you have m- multiple examples within the text that... They wouldn't embalm, but they would just bury them immediately. So it's unlikely that this guy's dad has already died. Not only that, once you were near the body and caring for that, you would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. So that would be another reason it's unlikely he would be around Jesus. Also, if his if his dad isn't dead yet, but he's close to death, don't you think you might ask him like instead, Lord, let me go bury my father. Lord, can you heal my father? Right? We've seen that plenty of times. Others point out that this phrase, let me go and bury my dead, was used as a way of speaking about a a delay until you receive the inheritance from your father. The idea is, let me go and bury my father. In other words, he's not dead yet, but let me wait until he lives out his years and he dies and then I can collect my inheritance and then I'll come follow you. Ah, okay, that makes a little more sense. And I think that's right. I think that's the idea here. It's not wrong to attend a funeral, to collect an inheritance. But this man has put a higher priority on this than on following Jesus right away. And so we might say he wants to delay discipleship. Lord, let me first do this. But Jesus says, tells him, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Oof. And Jesus tells him, There is a higher priority to attend to, namely proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus' statement means that, what does he mean here? That let the dead bury their own dead. How do dead people bury dead people? Well, they don't, right? Uh, so clearly, we understand Jesus is using a metaphor here, uh, or, or he's using a figure of speech, rather. He, he's, he's saying, let those who are dead spiritually bury the physically dead. And the Bible in the New Testament speaks about those who are lost, those who don't know Christ, as dead. Um, Those who come from death to life. I mean, the the one we point to most frequently is in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But it, it comes up many other times. And so Jesus is saying, hey, let other people can take care of these more mundane matters of life that are permissible to do. But not when Jesus is calling you to follow him right now. Let those who don't know Christ, who don't have this eternal perspective, take care of these mundane things. There's plenty of other family who could do this for you. Occupy themselves with these things. But you who are spiritually alive, you must prioritize what really matters most, the kingdom of God and the proclamation of it. He must give himself to proclamation. That is a higher priority. And so the issue is one of priority. There must be no delay to follow Christ. Now, I was thinking as well, like, can you imagine a, a better excuse than this man's? And he's like, let me just see my dad's days out and, and bury him, take care of him, bury him, and, and then I'll, and just think of all the resources I'll be able to bring to follow you, Jesus. So Je- for Jesus to rule this out, I think rules out every lesser excuse as well. In fact, one commentator said this, in essence, a best excuse, in fact, a reasonable one, has been submitted for postponing discipleship. Nevertheless, Jesus rejects the excuse. Nothing is to block the pursuit of discipleship and nothing is to postpone its start, end quote. Later in Luke 14, verse 25 and 26, Jesus will remind us of the need to prioritize Jesus even over family, he says there now now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple. One preacher said this we too have to watch that our loyalties do not become our idolatries. That our loyalties do not become our idolatries. Now, sometimes serving Christ means taking care of one's family. Do you remember that situation where Jesus is is rebuking the religious leaders because they would say like, "Oh, we can't take care of our family because uh, that money is dedicated to God. It's Corbin, you know. So we can't do it." But then they would spend it somewhere else, uh, and he was rebuking them for that. So sometimes following Christ means actually taking care of your family. Another preacher said this, you care for your parents as an expression of your faith in Christ, not as an excuse for faith in Christ. And that's what's happening with this man. Here we see that the priority of following Jesus comes before even good things. J.C. Ryle says, these things are not in themselves sinful, but when they are allowed to absorb a believer's time and keep him back from any plain religious duty, they become a snare to his soul. So ask yourself, where are... They're misplaced priorities in your life. Have you ever seen one of those uh, like word collages? I don't know how else to call them. You know, they take basically a corpus of, of information and they, the computer pulls the most frequently used words. You could do it with a small corpus or a large corpus and it basically puts all the most used words into this like collage and it makes the, most used words, uh, bigger, and the least used words, the smallest. And so, you know, uh, if you were to do it with the whole Bible, you know, you'd probably have, like, the word God would be, like, really huge, right? Uh, or just words that are used a ton. Um, and it's just fascinating, you know, it'll, it'll pick out, like, the, mo- the 50 most used words and then order them by size, and so they're, they're fascinating to look at, and you can do that. You could do it with someone's, all their sermons and, or just any corpus of material and see what is highlighted most. So, and you find out what the themes are in that body of literature. Well, if that was done on your life, what words would be biggest in your life? I don't mean like literally like what you say, but, but what would define your life? Would Christ be the biggest word there? Or would some other word dominate everything outside of it? And, and it would be the focal point that the, everyone's eye was directed to first because of its size of importance. Spurgeon says this, If Christ be not first with thee, Christ is nothing to thee. And so are there excuses being made for neglecting the most basic Christian disciplines Just pick the top three, the big three, prayer, Bible intake, weekly corporate worship with God's people. Are other priorities allowing for excuses for neglecting what Christ has explicitly commanded of you? Are you in danger of prioritizing other things to neglect of what Jesus is telling you is most important? Here's a man postponing, following, and proclaiming for something he values more. It's like he's saying, Jesus, I will get to you later, but right now, this other thing is more important to me. When you put it in those stark terms, it's like, ouch. (laughs) And so here's the danger of delayed discipleship. Maybe you've heard, I think I've told this story before, but maybe you haven't heard it. It's a fake story, but it makes a point. It's the story of the three demons who were tasked by Satan to come up with the greatest lie for humanity. And uh, so the first demon comes along and he says, I've got it. I've got the best lie there is no God. Satan's like, no, it's not a good one because God has made it evident within people's hearts that he exists. The creation cries out. Your conscience cries out. People know it's evident. They can't deny it. Next, second guy comes up. Second demon says, I got it. There is no judgment. And Satan says, no, that won't work either because the conscience of man knows God has written his law on the heart of man and he knows he cannot escape that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of ultimate justice. That won't work either. So the third one comes along and he says, I've got it. The greatest lie. There is no hurry. There's no hurry. And he says, there we go. Let's use that one. Of course, he utilizes all of them. But the danger of delayed discipleship, sadly, for all too many, It never comes. It just never comes. I'll get to it later. You know, and every stage of life has a different kind of set of goals that define that time. You know, when you're in high school, you know, I just want to get into college or whatever. And when you're in college, I just want to graduate or I want to get married in that season of life. And then I just want to get a little bit more into my career and uh, establish myself. And then, I, then it's like, I just want to retire. And, and it's just the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And it's just put off, put off, put off. It's like when I get there, when I get to this thing that I actually really love more than Jesus, then I'll serve Jesus. No, it doesn't work like that. The danger of delayed discipleship, beware. Finally, we see the danger of divided discipleship. The danger of a divided discipleship. Verses 61 and 62. Look at these verses here, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's another person who comes to Jesus, expresses a desire to follow him. I'll follow you, Lord. Starts out so well. What a great statement. That's a great statement. I will follow you, Lord. And he, too, comes with a request. Notice that this man also uses the term first, as the previous one did. But he also says, but. But first. Our following Christ can never come with a but. There is no negotiating your contract with Jesus. He determines the conditions of coming to him. And you either submit to them or you don't. What does this man want to do? He wants to return home and say farewell. And once again, you read this and you go, what? What's the big deal? Just let him say bye. Just let him, you know, wouldn't that be strange if someone just totally left their family and didn't say a word? I understand that. Sadly, I think some make this excuse, you know, <laughs> that they just, they don't explain it all to their family. And you know, you can see there's differences how Jesus deals with people. And you can kind of get the sense of what's really going on in their hearts. Because if you compare this man with Matthew, like Matthew gets called, follow me. And he leaves his tax business. And what does he do? He goes back to the people he knows and he throws a big party. And he invites Jesus to tell them about the gospel also. So clearly it's not a, a ironclad rule that you can't say goodbye. So, so there's something else going on here. Something else in this man's heart that Jesus knows and he's pressing him upon. Listen to Jesus' response. He said to him, No one puts his hand, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? All oh, this plowing, you know, he's plowing a field for farming. And he's saying, you can't be like looking back and, you know, turning the thing. This idea is a person who's looking back. They have a divided heart. That's the issue. They have a divided heart. Looking this way, looking that way. His heart and loves and desires and inclinations remain in his past life, evidenced by his frequent looking back. I remember learning to mow the lawn when I was a kid. And I remember that uh, one of my parents told me, okay, pick, a, pick an object or some kind of marker in the distance and look at that object and then find like the right wheel and align that wheel up with that, with that object and just stay on that mark just keep looking ahead. And then you won't have these little, you know, crazy lines <laughs> and it'll be more efficient. I remember learning about some farm, watch a farming show, and they were, t- this guy was talking about tram lines and, you know, when you, you farm, so you just have these permanent lines that the wheels go on for your, uh, your tractor or whatever, and you just, you're not going to have um, uh, things grow out of that, but that's just where you're going to go, and then when you harvest, you're just going to come back through that again, and you can't have these wonky tram lines, you're going to be very inefficient. And that's this idea here. If you're not looking ahead, you're not fit to do this job. You're not fit to plow. If you're constantly looking back, you're going to do a terrible job at it. So looking back here implies a divided heart, divided loyalty. And the issue is that we must have a single-minded focus upon Christ. Christ. And it's not that he looks back once. This is likely just a continual, you know, checking back. Just one more look. Looking back again. There's examples of this in scripture. Think about Lot's wife, Genesis 19. In fact, Jesus is going to use her as an example. He'll just say this, remember Lot's wife she looked back as they were leaving and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And and sometimes we think, man, that was a little harsh. But when you actually really get into the text, you see how wicked her heart was that she was leaving the city that God was sparing her from destruction and yet she still had her loyalties there. Her heart was still in that city though her geography was changing rapidly. And she looked back longing for that city, longing for that way that God was violently removing her from. Or think about Israel as they're brought out of Egypt, and they start to face some trouble in the wilderness, and so they complain. and They say, oh, you brought us out here to kill us, Moses. What that we had our full bellies back in Egypt? It's like, what is wrong? You guys have clearly forgotten what Egypt was like, <laughs> that you're longing back for Egypt and your time of slavery. This is the person who, who makes the profession, and then they just keep looking back and saying, like, oh, for the days and I could just sin freely. Oh, if I could just have a little bit more of that sin that I gave up, I can't do it now because of what people will think. Just want a little bit more, that's that heart. Cannot be a slave of two masters. Some note a similarity here actually between Elisha's calling in 1 Kings chapter 19, and if we rightly understand the context, I think it is a helpful comparison or contrast, rather. Listen to this in uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 19. Remember, Elijah is the prophet at large, and he's bringing Elisha along to replace him. And so, verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, that's Elijah found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. Oh, plowing. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned and followed him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him we have to read this carefully because yes, there are similarities. There's plowing going on. There's a request to return home. But there is a difference. Uh, don't view this man, Elisha, as if he's somehow being like this man in Luke chapter 9. Let me just read for you a really helpful commentary by Ralph Davis on 1 Kings where he, he exonerates Elisha here. And he says this, quote, Sometimes Elisha has received less than favorable reviews because people allow Luke 9 to color their reading of our passage. Because of the similar trappings and coloring of the two texts, one wonders if interpreters don't view the volunteer in Luke 9 as Elisha's alter ego and therefore impute to Elisha an inferior commitment. The fellow in Luke 9 is far different from Elisha. Jesus' comment in verse 62 pictures one who has resolutely taken up a task, the plow, only to be continually looking back. That is, he has a divided mind. Luke 9:61 has only a formal similarity to 1 Kings 19:20. In Luke 9, saying goodbye is an obstacle to kingdom commitment, whereas in 1 Kings 19, it functions as the entry into kingdom service. Elisha goes back to sever his connections, not to delay his commitment. He does not return to hold back, but to cut loose. Because when you look at the text, you say, what is Elisha actually doing? And he goes home, and he just, he burns it all, and he kills the animals, and he just feeds everyone. It's like this last goodbye. There's no question of Elisha's commitment at this point. He knows exactly what Elijah is doing in casting his cloak upon him. He's calling him into ministry, and so he's saying, all right, let me Settle up my affairs and get rid of everything in this life so I can full out come and follow you. Elisha is an example of following the call immediately and fully. And yet this man in Luke 9, while making a similar claim, is not the same. And maybe he's thinking about this passage. We don't know. Well, let me go back. And Jesus recognizes that the situation is different. The heart is different. Elisha made it so he couldn't look back so we must be aware of the danger of divided discipleship. Many temptations can cause us to have a divided discipleship. We wonder what others are doing. It's a, it's a youthful term. Uh, I feel like I'm getting older. I don't know as many like the young terms. Anymore. FOMO. Have you guys heard of FOMO? Fear of missing out, right? Fear of missing out. You, you just imagine that everyone's just having this great time out there and you're missing out. You're not getting to do it. And so you're thinking, man, I fear missing out, being a part of the crowd. And you know, Instagram helps this as well. You think everyone's having it that day every day <laughs> and you're oh man, my life, you know. And and so this is the danger, and we ought not to have that. Or it's the danger of pining for the past. Oh man, you look favorably upon your sins. Sometimes you hear testimonies like that, you know, Lord spare us from those that when you, you hear people talk about their past life, it's almost like they are, they're glorifying their sin. And they, when they talk about their past life of sin, it's like, do you still want to do that? <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, yes, we, we speak about our sin uh, appropriately, but we, we hate it that we were stuck in that. Listen to what James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John two fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Second Timothy 2, 4. says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian, affi- civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Or how about Hebrews 12? Therefore, since we ha- are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Or finally, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We must pursue a complete devotion to Christ. What sins of the past are you tempted to return to? Have you not made a clean break with that sin? Whatever that is, whatever that sin is, just gently, carefully take the sword of the Spirit out of its sheath. Look at that sin and slay it, cut it down. Make no more peace with that sin. Hack it to pieces. Murder that sinful desire in cold blood. Mortify the flesh. Abort that sinful affection before it fur- grows further and gives birth to sin. That's what James 1 says. Sin conceives in the heart and it grows when it's nurtured and then it gives birth to sin. Must be dealt with severely. Severely. Beware of the danger of divided discipleship. When Cortez landed on the coast of Mexico, he had some trouble with his men, and so he had the ships that brought them there, save one. uh, Some say burned. uh, As I was reading about it, some, some say he just sunk them. But he destroyed the ships. There's no going back. There's no going back. Only forward. Have you destroyed the ships of your old life so you cannot go back? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Of course, he's not being literal because he says, you still have another eye. (laughs) So uh, that's an issue if the issue is just having eyes. And he says, throw it from you. What's the point? If your arm's cut off, your hand's cut off, I mean, it's not gonna work on the ground. Whether it's, so he's just exaggerating, saying, you cut it off, but then you just huck it from you, get it away from you. You take the most radical measures possible so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke leaves us wondering, what happened to these guys? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what their responses were. He didn't say they were sorrowful. He didn't say they can contemplate. I mean, he just doesn't tell us. And maybe that's part of his strategy. Maybe Luke wants to leave it open-ended so that it forces you to reckon with these questions as well and to say, am I a follower of Christ? Or to remind yourself of what you were called to. And so the question is, will you follow Christ? Don't worry about what happened to these three Certainly, we'll find out later. But what will you do with the demands of Christ? In the Gospel of Luke, as we've seen already and we'll continue to see, it shows us that to follow Christ is totally worth it. Totally worth it, if you were wondering. But only if you have eyes to see. You know, it kind of makes sense if people haven't seen the glory of Christ, if they haven't seen how compelling he is, that they would, make whatever their God is their God, whether it's the pursuit of power, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of um, fame and uh, position, whatever it may be, If, if they don't see Christ as compelling, why wouldn't they see that as more compelling and more satisfying in their dead heart? And so it takes God to open our hearts to cause regeneration that we might see who Christ really is, And in seeing him for who he really is, oh, everything changes. The Christ who was kind of, yeah, he's an important figure in history. I don't know, I'm not that interested in him. He becomes everything. He becomes all compelling, all consuming. He becomes the the compass of our lives. And so if Christ is not compelling to you, then these other things will be more compelling to you. When God opens our eyes, the beauty and worthiness of Christ, you must follow him. And last week we sang the song I'd rather have Jesus. Here's some of the summaries of that hymn. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, than riches untold, houses or lands, than men's applause, than worldwide fame. Why? Because he's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom, sweeter than honey from out of the comb. You know, you can be told that honey is sweet and never taste it. And you just think, yeah, it's sweet because everyone says honey is sweet. Sadly, the almost Christian is in that situation. The almost Christian knows Christ is sweet because they've heard it over and over again, but they've never tasted honey before. They cannot say from experience, oh, it is so sweet, it is so good. And so the difference between the almost Christian and the altogether Christian is that the altogether Christian has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Desire yourself to be not just an almost Christian, but an altogether Christian. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and the precious word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this is such a sobering message. This is such a profound call to follow you, it's showing us the demands of discipleship. And yet, Lord, it is impossible in our own strength to follow you, yet it is by your grace that you open our eyes, you convert us, you cause us to see Christ as glorious and wonderful, and you continue to do that in our lives as we grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, I pray you'd grant that such a sight of Christ, even this morning, for those who have never really tasted and seen that you're good, that they might turn from their sin and trust you. Lord, for us who know you, we see these, these things and, and we are challenged again in our commitment to you. We, maybe we're convicted in various ways and so help us to repent where we need to. But also, Lord, it causes us to rejoice that you've called us into the greatest discipleship. We've called us to know you, to be your children. And Lord, you also give us some perspective that not everyone who is called externally will follow you. And so it helps us to know that you are sovereign and that we do our best to proclaim the kingdom and be faithful and leave the results to you. And so may you be glorified through this word that we've heard and help us, Lord, and even in our proclamation of the gospel to have these categories in our minds as we deal with others so that we might help them to uh, know their make sure they're calling an election and so have that assurance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.